Good morning and welcome to New Hope Church. For those of you who have been away, welcome home. It's so good to see your faces. So good to be able to worship with you guys face to face, face to mask, but face to face. <laughs> Please stand with us as we are going to worship and welcome those of you online. Thanks for hanging in there with us. We're going to worship our Lord this morning.
turning back. There's no turning back to you, Lord. And what's so amazing, Lord, is in you we can be fearless because we know that even now you are still doing your wonders. So come alive in us, Lord. Make your presence known. Mountains are still being moved. Strongholds are still being loosed. God, we believe it. Yes, we can see that wonders are still what you do. Bodies are still being raised. Giants are still being slain. God, we believe it. Yes, we can see that wonders are still what you do. We are here for you. Come and do what you do. We are here for you. Come and do what you do. Set our hearts on you. Come and do what you do. Cause we need a move. We need a move. Your body's still being
Spirit in this place, in our hearts. Come and move us. Make us different. Make us more like you, God. We want to be more like you. So let's listen to what you have to say. Let's listen to what you want for us,
heart's desire is that we would be in your presence. To not look backwards, but look to, to look forward to where you're calling us to go. Can't go back to the beginning. Can't control what tomorrow will bring. But I know here in the the place where you promise to be
right now, wholly surrendering to you all that we are. Because all that we are really means nothing without you. Or maybe some of us, we've been chasing or after things that are not of you. But right now, you're in this place meeting here with us. Our struggles, our problems, even our victories. You're saying, I want it all because you want all of us. And there was never a time, there's never a moment in our lives that you weren't there. Right now, Lord, we open the door. We let you in. We make room. It's more than a song, Lord. It's the cries of our heart. Saying, Lord, we surrender everything that we are to you because what you have in store for us is far greater. Because who you are is the greatest. So, Lord, we receive you. Your presence is here already, but Lord, we don't ask you to fill this room. We, fi- we ask that you fill the rooms in our hearts and in our souls, in our minds, in our bodies. And Lord, maybe there's some of us here that maybe we need healing and Lord, you're gonna bring it right now because miracles are still what you do. Thank you, Lord, for being who you are. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We worship you. We praise you. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. And we all said, amen, amen. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome home. For some of you who are joining us for the first time, maybe you've been, you've been waiting for us to not do the registration. Welcome home. And maybe you're visiting us for the first time. We want to welcome you as well. You can have a seat. But before you do, would you go ahead and maybe just throw shakas to somebody that's next to you. For those of you who are online, we're so glad that you're joining us as well online. Be sure to type in the comments. Welcome. And let's welcome Pastor, uh, Pastor, uh, let's say Pastor Sheldon. Pastor Sheldon. I changed. <laughs> <laughs> let's welcome Pastor Marsha as she gives us an awesome message as we continue in our series, Surrender. Thank you, Pastor Ben. Thank you, worship team, for awesomely leading us into the presence of God. And thank you, man. Feels so good to be here and to see every one of you in here. It's been a trek, but we've, we're coming through, and we are going to continue, right? Because we have the presence of the Lord, not just in this place, but in our hearts. And I'm grateful for that. Well, we are continuing on in our series, and today I get to talk about freedom in Christ. And just a few weeks ago, we actually celebrated Independence Day. Now, as a nation, not only were we celebrating our independence as a nation from Great Britain, but we celebrate the very thought of freedom. We celebrate independence and our right to it. A right that is written right into the Declaration of Independence. Now, in the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, we all learned this in school, but just in case you forgot, it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed with the, by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. See, here in the U.S., we have the right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. 
And when we were young, we often felt that our parents hindered our pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. And I remember um, growing up, and I'm sure all of you do, that the minute my parents said, you can't do that, the minute that they put a boundary on me, we all said this, and you can say it with me. Like, I can't wait till I get older because then I can do anything I want. When we were young and under our parents' rules, we dreamed of the day and the time that we would be free to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want, and nobody could tell us any different. And finally, that day came, and we were able to move out because if you're 18 and you're still at your parents' house, you're still in your parents' house. But when you move out, then you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. And then we realized that that freedom freed us from, from hindrances, but it also freed us too. Paying rent or mortgage, getting a job and keeping it, being on time. It freed us towards responsibilities. See, we always think, and freedom is defined as, the power or right to act, speak, or think without hindrance or restraint. But let's think about that logically. See, if we all had the right to do whatever we want without any hindrance and without any restraint, then we would live in utter chaos. In fact, in the book of Judges in the Bible, there's a time recorded in the very history of Israel when the people lived and they acted and they made decisions without any hindrance, without any restraint. They did whatever pleased them. And to me, one of the worst accounts in the Bible occurs at the very end of Judges. And every time I would read the book of Judges, I would argue with God. Every single year, I would argue with God. And I would say, God, why is that even in your Bible? Like, if I were writing my story, I wouldn't put that in there. Like, I wouldn't even let it be known. God, do you know how bad this makes you look? Every year. I would have that argument with God every single year. But this year, I read something that I'm absolutely, positively, 100% sure that God did not put it in here only this year. It's been there forever. I just never saw it. And the very last sentence in the book of Judges, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever he wanted. Everyone did whatever he wanted. See, all those years that I argued with God, all those years that I told him, man, this makes you look so bad, I had it wrong. Because it doesn't make God look bad at all. It makes humans look very bad. It reveals what we're capable of when we're free to do whatever we want without any hindrance or any restraint. And whenever we're free to make decisions without hindrance, without restraint, then we're going to choose what's best for me, 
with no thought about anybody else. And that's what we learn in the book of Judges. See, everyone pursued life. They pursued liberty. And they pursued happiness on their own terms with no hindrance, no restraint. And it led to some very, very horrible decisions. And here we are, thousands of years later, living in a society and culture where we want to be totally free from any restraint and hindrances. We look for that. We yearn for that. We fight for that. And recent history has shown us that we will riot for that. After all, it's part of our DNA. It's even written into the Declaration of Independence. Well, that's true. However, nine years later, from May 25th to September 17th in 1787, during the first Constitutional Convention, which formed our federal government and set laws into motion, the Constitution was signed. And it added restraint to our freedom. However, John Adams, who signed the Constitution, recognized that even the Constitution of the United States has limitations to it. And he said this, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. See, John Adams and the framers of the Constitution understood that the Constitution itself isn't enough to govern us. According to Adams, our Constitution itself is kept in check by a higher law. And when we look at what Adams said, we see that in his view, the higher law comes from a moral and religious principle. Now, the higher law which is built on moral and religious principle, is what makes us free. It makes us free within limitations. And you wonder what that is. Well, the Apostle Paul, in a letter to the church in Galatia, called this law the law of Christ. And this is what he said. He says, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. See, we fulfill the law of Christ when we bear each other's burdens. Not when I do what I want, not when I get what I want, not when I can do whatever. I fulfill the law of Christ when I bear another person's burdens. So what is this law of Christ? Well, the Apostle Paul mentions it once more in a letter to the Corinthians. But other than those two references, it's not clearly defined. And most biblical scholars will say that the law of Christ is what Jesus referred to when he referred to the two greatest commandments. See, one day Jesus was asked, what are the greatest of all the commandments? And he said this, and he find it in Mark 12. He says, Jesus answered them, the first of all the commandments is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So simply put, this higher law, the law of Christ, is love. Love sets the boundaries to our freedom. 
And in one of God's greatest mysteries, the law of Christ, which is love, is what sets us free. Now, I know we don't pass out notes, um, so if you have the app or if you're following online, you can go over to the notes tab and you can start taking notes. And the first thing you can fill in in the blanks is God's love frees us. God's love sets us free. In a letter to the new believers in what is now Turkey, Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus, wrote, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. And if anyone could understand this, it would be Peter. See, Peter has an incredible story. He walked with Jesus during his years here on earth. And Peter's walked so closely with Jesus that whenever you read the Gospels, you're going to read Peter's story. See, Peter saw all of Jesus' miracles. He experienced his love. He experienced the forgiveness that Jesus would offer to people. One time, they were out in the, um, in the water, and a storm was coming, and the waves were rocking the boat, and they see Jesus walking towards them on the water, and Peter says, hey, call me out. If that's really you, call me out. So Jesus does, and Peter gets out, and he starts walking on the water, and then he takes his eyes off of Jesus, looks at the storm, and starts to sink. And Jesus reaches out and pulls him up. Another time, Jesus was saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. And Peter says, oh, no, 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 no. And Jesus had to reprimand Peter. And probably in what is Peter's lowest moments, they had dinner with Jesus. Jesus tells him, this is what's going to be happening. And Peter says, ah, everybody can fall away, but I'm not going to fall away. I'm steadfast. I'm steady. I'm Peter. I'm the rock. And Jesus says, now, before this night is over, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter says, ah, it's not going to happen. And sure enough, that very night, Jesus is betrayed by one of the disciples. He's standing a mock trial. He's being beaten and tortured. And Peter denies Jesus three times. And in Luke's account, he says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. So if, Peter understand, if anyone understands failure, we know that that's Peter. And he's the one who says, love covers a multitude of sins. Now can you imagine what Peter was feeling after he denied Jesus? Can you imagine the shame, the pain, the regret that he felt after that moment? What must it have felt like for him in those days in between the crucifixion before Jesus was resurrected to know that he had denied his Savior. Can you imagine what would have been running through his mind after he went back to fishing and looked on the shore and saw the resurrected Christ waiting for them? Or what he would be feeling when Jesus was talking only to him on the shore? And against the backdrop of denying Jesus Against the backdrop of all his failures, he hears Jesus cover it all by saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? See, Jesus covered over every one of Peter's denials with a simple question, and it had to do with love.
And if anyone understood the power of love to cover over sins, it's going to be Peter. And because he experienced the healing power of God's love, he was able to encourage the believers in Turkey to allow love to cover over sins. And we're not much different than Peter. See, if you're anything like me, in the back of your mind are some things that you said that you regret, things that you've done that you wish you didn't do, decisions that you made that you wish you could undo. And like Peter, Jesus covers over our sins with love. Now, how is it that love has the power to cover over sins? Well, let's look at how the Apostle Paul described love in 1 Corinthians. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. And if you've attended a wedding, you've probably heard the officiant use that scripture in talking to the couple that are getting married. And it's a great scripture to use in weddings and marriages, but it's also a great scripture to measure our own lives to. So I'm going to ask us to pause for a minute right here. And we're going to look at the scripture again, and we're going to digest what love looks like. And whether you're sitting here in this room or whether you're online, I want to ask you to do something with this scripture. And this time we're going to reread it. And it's up here on the, um, the um, screens. But this time when we reread it, instead of love, I want you to use God's name. And instead of just reading, God is patient, I want you to personalize it. And God is patient with me. God is kind to me. So if you're here, I'm going to ask you, let's read it out loud together. And if you're at home, you might not want to because I don't know what's going on around you. But we're going to take some time. And you guys ready? Let's do this. God is patient with me. God is kind to me. God doesn't envy me. God does not boast over me. God is not proud. God doesn't dishonor me. God is not self-seeking, and he's not easily angered with me. God keeps no record of my wrongs. God doesn't delight in evil, but God rejoices in the truth. God always protects me. God always trusts me. God always hopes for me. God always perseveres for me. That's how love sets us free. This is how God loves you and me. We can take that down. Thank you. He is patient and he's kind. He honors us. He seeks our good. He doesn't keep a list of all our sin or our failure. And through his experiences and the experiences of many of the men and women that we read about in the Bible, we get a picture of what freedom in Christ looks like. And because God loves us this way, because he values us like this, we are set free from condemnation. 
We're set free from having to measure up to other people's expectations. We're set free, free from fear, from doubt. We're set free from anything that keeps us from living fully in the power and the freedom that God intended us to have. We're set free from feeling like I have to do better or not do certain things so that I can earn the love of God. In her upcoming book, When Striving Cease, Ruth Cho Simons wrote this. She said, we constantly doubt. We feel our way around approval and relational favor and sometimes even overcompensate for the debt we believe we owe if it's simply not clear where we stand. You see, if we don't know where we stand, if we're not sure of the love of God towards us, then we're going to do whatever we can to make sure that we stay in his love. We're going to do whatever we can to make sure I earn his love. And we're going to make sure we do whatever we can so that he doesn't stop loving us. And she continues, We can't understand grace as the only means of true change in our lives if we don't fully grasp the extent of our forgiveness and pardon in Christ. Striving doesn't simply look like keeping the law through good works or earning your salvation through right behavior. It can also look like constantly trying to repay the gift of grace with your offerings of holiness. See, we don't need to strive or try hard to earn God's love, and we don't have to repay the gift because that's what it is. It's a gift. And you can write that in for number two. God's love is given, not earned. We don't earn it. In a letter to the church in Ephesus, the apostle Paul encouraged them, you were saved by faith in God, who treats us much better than we deserve. This is God's gift to you. And not anything you have done on your own. It isn't something you have earned, so there is nothing you can brag about. God's, grace is God's gift to you through love. And because God loves us, he extends undeserved grace toward us that cannot be earned. However, just because we can't earn God's love and his grace, just because he gives it to us, doesn't mean it's free. It costs greatly. It costs Jesus his life on the cross. One of the most well-known verses in the Bible is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, God didn't send Jesus to the cross because we believed. He sent him to the cross because of his love for us. And because Jesus went to the cross, all we have to do is believe. That's God's love and his unmerited, unearned grace towards us. When my children and later my grandchildren were born, I didn't withhold my love from them. They didn't do anything to earn it. They didn't have to do anything. I didn't wait for them to do something like, oh, okay, now I can love you. 
They already had it before they were born. And I can promise you this, with three adult children and 10 grandkids, and everything that we have experienced with them and through them, one thing has remained constant, my love for them. They've never had to earn it. Now, have they done things that have been hurtful? You bet. Have I been embarrassed at times? Absolutely. Have I wanted to lock them out of my house? Yeah. But I never stopped loving them. I never loved them less. I never loved them more. They had my love. And imagine this. I'm a human being, and I fail. And I have weaknesses. But I never stopped loving my kids. And if I can do that as a human, what must it be like for God to love us, his children? See, God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to the cross because of his love for us. Because Jesus went to the cross, all we do is believe we don't have to earn it, we don't have to work for it, we don't have to try harder, we don't have to try less. We don't have to be better than the next person, and the next person doesn't need to be worse than us. All we have to do is trust that his love is unchanging. And any time any of us finds ourselves doubting our salvation, we can trace it right back to feeling unworthy of the love of God. We think, well, I've done this. There is no way that God can love me. Man, I made that decision. I don't think so. I said this to that person. I wonder if he can still love me. Or when we feel convicted, we wonder, man, I'm feeling this. Is it because God's removing his love from me? The answer is no. His love is still the same. And when we recognize our sin, when we recognize our failure, it's not God's rejection of us. It's his invitation to us to draw nearer to him. But his drawing us near to him is not permission to continue sinning. Instead, it's an invitation to receive and experience his grace because he is the way, the truth, and the life. We do not earn his love. We receive it. We don't earn our salvation. We receive it. And then our privilege is to follow him, to serve him, and to become like him. See, God's love for us is constant and unchanging. And a perfect example of God's constant and unchanging love comes from Jesus as he related the parable of the prodigal son. Now, you can find that um, in the book of Luke. But I'm just going to give you an abridged version. So this man had two sons. And his younger son decided they had places to be, things to do, people he wanted to see. And so he goes to his father, and he says, I want my inheritance now. And basically what he was saying is, I, well, I have a life to live. I can't wait for you to die so that I can get everything coming to me. I want it now. And the father gave it to him. He gave him his inheritance. And that son had things to do. And he had places to be, so he did. He left. And he went and he lived life 
without restraints. He went and lived life without any hindrances. He did whatever he wanted, whenever, with whomever, until one day their money ran out. And then he found himself in a low-status job that was extremely low-paying. And he realized, oh, maybe I made a mistake. And in the book of Luke, Jesus says this, that the boy realizes he's made this mistake and he wants to go home. And he says to himself, I will go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against God in heaven and against you. I am no longer good enough to be called your son. Treat me like one of your workers. And the younger son got up and started back to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt sorry for him. He ran to his son, and he hugged him, and he kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against God in heaven and against you. I am no longer good enough to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Hurry! and bring the best clothes and put them on him. Give him a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Get the best calf and prepare it so we can eat and celebrate. This son of mine was dead, but now has come back to life. He was lost and now has been found. See, Jesus' story, when we get to the part about the rejection that the father must have felt, the shame he must have felt among his community that his son did this, the greed that the son expressed to the father, all of that meant absolutely nothing to the father. See, Jesus said, while the son was far off, the father saw him. You know what that tells me? The father went out every day and he looked and he hoped and he waited for his son to return. And when his son returned, he didn't say, I told you so. Now what are you going to do? He ran to him. He embraced him. He welcomed back into the family. And he restored his status. And Jesus tells that story because that is exactly what God does to you and me. He looks for us. He watches over us. He sees us afar off and he draws us back. And he restores our status. Pause for a minute. Think about what it is that you think is separating you from God. What is it about yourself that you think can keep God from loving you? And remember that he's watching over you, and he's not watching over you to judge you. He wants to welcome you home. He wants to move towards you. And he wants to embrace you. Now, I'll be honest, that's not the picture I had of God when I was growing up. I thought that God kept a record of my sins. A record of my sins. It was long. And I felt like God was going to remind me one day, well, you did this, 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 and this. But the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, love keeps no record of wrongs. God doesn't watch over us to record our wrongs. He watches over us to cover over our sin and our failure. He watches over us with the intent of extending grace towards us and moving us towards him. Author Brandon Manning, Manning who's a former priest, wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. 
And in it, he says this. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ. And I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. And in the corner of my book, I wrote, My deepest awareness of God is that he deeply loves me. And I can't do anything to earn it or lose it. And when we receive a gift that that is that overwhelmingly good, we're compelled to share it. And think about it. What do you do when you find a good restaurant? You tell your friends, you bring your friends, or if you have social media, you post pictures. It's the same way with God's love. According to the Apostle Paul, God's love is what compelled him to share the gospel. And like Peter, who we talked about earlier, Paul understood the power of God's love because the power of God's love shared to him through another set him free. And that's our third point. God's love through us frees others. And Paul would understand that. See, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he upheld the law. And in the midst of violently attacking the fledgling church, God stops him and draws his attention. And in that moment, Paul goes blind for a little bit. And God sends Paul into the city and says, you wait there until I tell you what to do. And while Paul is in the city waiting, God is talking to a man named Ananias, and he says, Ananias, I have a man I want you to go see. And I want you to go for, to him, and I want you to pray over him, and I want you to restore his sight. And Ananias says, are you kidding me? See, Paul's reputation preceded him. And Ananias is like, no. Do you know what this man is doing? You know, it might be good that he's blind, because then he can't do what he's doing. Let's leave him like that. And God says, no, I want you to go. He's a chosen vessel of mine. And so Ananias gets up, and he goes to this man who he's heard about, who he said, have you heard about him? And he goes to this man, and he calls him brother. And then he goes in and prays for him, and Paul receives his sight. Paul experienced God's love through someone. And through that act, he understood and experienced what God's love through someone could do to change a heart. And out of that very personal experience, Paul could, co Paul could confidently instruct the churches he planted. Make a clean break with all cutting, backbiting, profane talk. Be gentle with one another, sensitive. Forgive one another as quickly and thoroughly as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. See, because of his experience, Paul directed the church to be just as loving and gracious as Christ had been to them. And as we read through the Bible, we cannot help but notice the connection between loving God and loving his people. Notice his instruction. Forgive one another as quickly and thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. So we need to allow God's love in us to flow freely through us and set others free. 
that easy. But that's what we're called to do. See, freedom in Christ frees us to free others. And I want to end with this story. Easter Sunday, four years ago, Robert Godwin Sr. is walking along his neighborhood, and he's picking up aluminum cans. And a stranger approaches him and shoots him and kills him. And not only does he shoot him in broad daylight, but he records the video and posts it on social media. And we hear that, man, that's horrible. And that's true. And it, but as horrible as that story is, the thing that amazes me is Robert's children. Because they chose to forgive. And they were interviewed. And one of his daughters said this, I promise you, I could not do that if I did not know God. If I didn't know him as my God and my Savior, I could not forgive that man. It's just what our parents taught us. They didn't talk it, they lived it. Neighbors would do things to us and we'd go, Dad, really? And Dad would say, yes, that's what we have to do. And the thing that I would take away the most from my dad is he taught us about God, how to fear God, how to love God, and how to forgive. And each one of us, my brothers and my sisters, each one of us forgives that man. Forgive one another as quickly and thoroughly as God and Christ forgave you. Because of what they learned, they were able to do something that I'm sure some of us are sitting here right now going, I don't know if I could do that. But they set that example. God's love compelled them to forgive what many of us call unforgivable. Earlier this week, I was talking with Pastor Lynn, and she said, the greatest freedom that we have is to love others. That's what freedom in Christ is. We're free from sin. We're free from judgment, but we're free to love others. Paul said it this way. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves one another has fulfilled the law. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. We're set free by God's love. But this freedom is for something much higher than our life, our liberty, or our pursuit of happiness. It's the freedom that sets us free to become like Christ and love others. Paul encourages us, my friends, you were chosen to be free. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do anything you want. Use it as an opportunity to serve each other with love. And that's what I want to leave you with this morning. No one is freer than a Christian who understands that our freedom is a catalyst for loving others. So be free. I said others free in the process. Would you bow your heads and let's pray. Abba Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the freedom that we have. 
May we walk in that freedom, Lord God, but may we understand that with that freedom is great responsibility because your love covers over all our sins, all our failures, all our mistakes. But then you set us free, Lord God, so that we could love others with the same love that you loved us, so that we would extend the same grace that you extended to us. And so, Lord God, we ask for that. We thank you for the freedom, and we ask that you would embolden us and give us the courage to set others free. And for those of you who maybe you haven't experienced that freedom in Christ yet, and you say, I want that, we're going to say a prayer. And if you want to, you can ask Jesus to come into your heart to set you free and to allow you to be a catalyst for loving others. And he can forgive you. He wants to forgive you from everything you've ever done. He wants to forgive you from everything that's holding you back. So if you're online and you want to receive Jesus, put that in the chat so someone will know. If you're in here, put your hand up so we can pray for you. I see that. I see that. I see your hand back there. So we're going to pray. And if you're receiving Jesus, I want you to pray with me. And even those of us who already have, just to remind ourselves. Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Set me free. Set me free from sin and condemnation. Set me free from feeling that I'm not good enough or worthy enough. Bring me into your kingdom. Help me to feel the embrace of your Father. And help me to be used as a catalyst to bring your love to others. I receive you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.